It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is CEO Seth Radwell. Seth is a veteran e-commerce and direct marketing executive most recently having served as CEO of the Proactive Company. Previously, he served as President and Chief Revenue Officer of Guthy Ranker, as well as President of Scholastic and Executive Vice President of Scholastic Inc., the global children's publishing and education company. Seth received a master's degree in public policy with a concentration in international trade and finance from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He also holds a Bachelor of Arts degree summa cum laude from Columbia College. Seth Radwell, welcome into the corner office. It's a pleasure to be with you, Brent. I'm very happy. Well, as you know, we're going to talk a little bit about how you made it to your corner office. And, you know, one of the things we always like to start with is, you know, what was the, what were the early years like? Where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Uh, what were the kind of things that interested you then? Great. Well, it's um, I've, I've had an interesting career, and it really all started out um, with a very modest background in the sense that I was born in New York to a, a middle-class uh, family. And I grew up in the city and then in the suburbs of New York and attended um, public school, never uh, any private school. Uh, and again, my family was uh, very modest in, in background. And I grew up with two siblings, the youngest of three, and my parents. And again, we moved to the suburbs when I was probably around 12 or so. Uh, of New York. What did your parents do? What was your dad or mom's profession? Sure. My dad was a, a certified public accountant and he worked in the real estate industry as an accountant. And my mother was a, early on was a teacher and then transitioned into becoming a social worker. She got a master's degree in social work later on in her career. So they were both working parents and um, they were uh, gotten very middle class and very down to earth uh, and, and good ro- role models in terms of education and, and work ethic. Sounded like you have some pretty good foundations there from an upbringing standpoint. I think so. I think so. And I, I, um, I, I did very well in school. It was, I've got a public school in our local neighborhood, but uh, while doing very well in, in the academic subjects, I was also quite involved in a group of extracurricular activities uh, that was, I mean, at the, at the time it was mostly focused on music and arts uh, type, some sports, but mostly music and arts. Did you play an instrument? What, tell us about your music interests. Yeah, I, I was kind of a music lover early on. So back um, in those days when I was a kid, I played reeds. I uh, had studied clarinet and saxophone, 
and I played in a number of uh, venues. We had like a school band and an orchestra. I also sang in a chorus. I was kind of a baritone. So I was very involved with music. I played soccer for a while and ice hockey, but I was, uh, I, so I was also interested in some sports, but I did a lot of, of music during those years. And of course, my music interests have evolved a lot over time. You mentioned art as well. Was there a specific art uh, direction that you went at a younger age? Well, mostly theater arts. We did a lot of performance, um, a lot of uh, uh, drama, comedy, some musicals. So it was mostly theater arts, which was, of course, related to the music. What about leadership roles or anything entrepreneurial that you were doing when you were younger? Paper routes, uh, selling mistletoe at Christmas time, that type of thing. Uh, it's funny. You know, I did have somewhat of an entrepreneurial streak, in the, mostly in terms of uh, during the winters, I would try to make as much money as I could shoveling snow and that kind of thing. <laughs> and then right. But we did. I did start working when I was pretty young. I think when I was like 16 or in, in high school, I started working at a restaurant uh, not too far from where I lived. And I got very involved in that establishment over time. I started out, believe it or not, washing dishes and doing kitchen work. And over the years of high school and even into college, I became... Um, First a busboy and then a waiter and a major d. I, I did a lot of work expanding the restaurant. So there was a lot of entrepreneurial outlet I felt during uh, my my teenage years through uh, that that job. And that restaurant uh, job was that a family friend or was that a job that you went out and got on your own at that early age? It's funny, it was a local restaurant that was pretty well known and it, no relationship to my family, but a friend of mine was also working there and introduced me to the owner. And so I started out doing that. That's great. Yeah. Were you able to, sorry, go ahead. It was, it was a very, um, it was a kind of a local Italian restaurant. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I actually really enjoyed working. Well, and it sounded like you kind of went through the ranks there too, which always gives somebody an exposure to, you know, the workings of uh, an enterprise, right? Washing the dishes, waiting the tables, working behind the bar. Did you kind of get exposed to a lot of the different uh, aspects of that restaurant? I did. And what's really interesting is I almost never get to talk about this, but when I, when I think back, um, I think that those years and that experience influenced me more than I can, uh, than I probably admit in the sense that once I got out of the kitchen, dealing with customers, with, with, uh, with people every day and every evening, um, you know, even as a busboy, but then as a waiter, it was quite fascinating. And I think communication and people interaction and seeing all kinds of people I, I, at a pretty young age, I was exposed to that. I think it was quite, uh, for, I think it was quite formative for me. What were some of the customer service lessons lessons that you think you picked up during those years? Well, that's funny. You know, always realizing that even um, when somewhat unreasonable, the customer is always right, and the goal of of the, the entire staff at the restaurant is to make the customer happy, is to give a good experience, uh, and um, you know what that entailed often required putting on the back burner one's own thoughts or feelings and being able to put yourself in the mind of a customer. And at, at you know, 17 years old, when I was probably a busboy or 16, 17, that was an interesting thing to figure out how to do. Uh, especially, you know, in the various instances that invariably come up where a customer is unreasonable and, you know, you've got to, you've got to figure out how to deal with that. Um, and then, of course, the interpersonal issues between the staff. Um, the, I remember there was a, a funny story where there was at one point one of the key cooks and the head waiter wouldn't communicate. They had some kind of a spiff or fight or something. And I used to, we'd be standing in the same, we'd all be in the kitchen, and 
the the head waiter would say, uh, <laughs> Seth, can you can you tell Stan to make you know veal, veal parmesan? Stan was right there. I'd say, Stan, Mike wants a veal parmesan. No, I, I had to communicate them between them because they weren't talking. So you're kind of in yeah. a sense in another family setting, but but one that's often different from right. your own, and so it's a, it's a growing experience. And how many years did you work there over uh, your high school and junior high years? It sounds like. Well, well, all through uh, uh, high school, and then what happened was once I became um, the major D and head waiter when I was a senior. Uh, after I would, I went to college in New York City, Columbia, and I would often come back on holidays and continue to wait there. So I would say all in about I was probably you know involved with that restaurant for four, four or five years. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you're pretty busy uh, going back to kind of your high school years with obviously your music, theater, theater arts, working in the restaurant. How were your grades? Were you were you a B student, A plus? Did you just kind of skim by? Tell us a little bit about your performance during those years. I was very academically strong. I mean, I, I think I was yeah. I always had been an A student um, since pretty early on. Uh, I was I think I was blessed with I enjoyed studying. I was good at I was always very strong in in sciences and math, um, but my love was in uh, really in in liberal arts. So so for example, I I always did extremely well in in all of math and science. If I remember, you know, in the chemistry regions for New York State, I got a I got a hundred or so. But but I actually um, enjoyed uh, like English and uh, foreign languages. Uh, at the time, I was studying Spanish. Um, social studies. I didn't do as well in those topics, in those subjects. I was probably you know, kind of a B plus in those, but um, those are what I really enjoyed. Did you find that uh, that math and science uh, orientation helped you later on? I know that uh, and we'll talk about your career in a minute, but going to McKinsey and going into the consulting world, was that uh, kind of a foundation for uh, that type of work or uh, were there other things that are more important? Well, I think they're both, they're both you know, quantitative skills are, were, are fundamental, and I had a great foundation to build upon, which I also did in college to some degree. I did a lot of um, uh, computer uh, science work and, and mathematics in college as well. But but I think the foundation on the math side is really important. And, um, you know, fundamentally, the quantitative side of problem solving is just so important. Um, I think also science as well. I mean, I think... Um, I took all the sciences in school, but I think chemistry is what stands out for me because chemistry is is math, it's language, it's 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 problem solving. I think that was very important in terms of my early academic life. So you went to Columbia. Uh, was that something you did straight out of high school? Did you take some time off and work in between? Tell us a little bit about your thought process around uh, selecting Columbia as your uh, university degree, undergrad. Sure. So. Um, when I was applying to schools, I uh, I was intrigued by Columbia because I had no idea what I wanted to do in life, <laughs> um, whether to go into science or medicine or whether to do business or law. I had really no sense. And Columbia had an important, very notable program in the liberal arts. It was called it was the core curriculum. So in the first couple of years at Columbia, like your first two years. Most of the curriculum is specified. You, you don't have that many electives. And interestingly enough, to, to me, that foundation in, uh, you know, Western civilization, liberal arts appealed to me, the, the Columbia's core curriculum, the courses like contemporary civilization and literature humanities and also music and art. So um, I think I was considering going to Cornell 
where I also uh, got uh, gotten accepted and maybe uh, University of Pennsylvania. So there's a couple of good schools, but I think I chose Columbia for the core curriculum. Fantastic. And you, you stayed there all four years? Yes. Yes. I, I moved in on, into, on campus into the dorms and I, I went uh, straight through for four years and it was a, it was an incredible experience. I mean, Columbia was a whole nother chapter of my early life that um, was extremely uh, uh, compelling both in terms of the course of study, but equally the people that I met and the things I got involved with. I was, um, I studied many different things. I was kind of all over the map undergraduate because I really didn't understand or know yet what I wanted to do. So uh, that probably was one of the attractions of having that liberal arts uh, education. Did, did you find that during those first couple of years that you began to identify areas that you might want to pursue as a career or did that come later? So, yes, I, mean, I loved the class, the, the work in, in, I remember this class called Contemporary Civilization, which is all about reading kind of the classic canon of, of Western uh, literature and, and philosophy, which I loved. I also... Um, took a music humanities course, which I was fascinated in. And I, I guess because I always loved music, but I got exposed to a whole nother level of music. And I got very interested in classical and Baroque music and opera at that time. And I also, interestingly enough, because of some friends that I had made at Columbia, I became passionate about French. I'd never taken French, but I started going to the French, La Maison Française, which is the French house at Columbia, and I, I quickly enrolled in French, and I started getting very involved in that, which I enjoy. So I had I had many interests and um, activities as well at college. Sounds like a very broad education. What a great experience! Yes, it was, and it's. I find it it's interesting because I think um, you know broad liberal arts education uh, is some. I think to the, in today's world, sometimes it's um, de-emphasized, but I think it's important not only for career, but in terms of for forming a complete human being, you know, being, being, getting background and getting a, um, a knowledge of a broad based knowledge of, you know, of civilizations and things like that, I think are important. What about your extracurriculars during college? Were you involved? Did you stay involved in uh, theater arts? Did you continue with your music? Uh, were you working? Sure. Tell us a little bit about what happened outside of classes. Sure. I, I was very involved with this French association um, I was doing a lot of work in terms of bringing speakers in to, to the French house, um, catering and working at events there. So I, I, that was one of my key interests. I stayed involved in music, although I didn't, um, I, I did a little bit of, of acting, uh, at that time. Um, in fact, there was a soap opera that I was briefly working on. So I had a couple of, a couple of interesting things in the arts. I, I always stayed involved in music, but I wasn't playing as much then. Um, I had stopped playing the reeds and um, I was playing a little bit of piano for a time. But uh, yeah, so I had, I mean, the, I would, I will say the workload was quite intensive. So I did a fair amount of, uh, I was a pretty uh, judicious student. And um, as a consequence, I ended up, you know, I, I did very well at Columbia. I was summa cum laude. I had like a 3.9 GPA. So I did very well. And it was a tough program. So I was pretty, I, I, I was pretty dedicated to studying. Um, I think I took to education really well, uh, and I think it's one of the reasons why throughout my career I've always stayed involved in education in some way. Now, you uh, went on to Harvard's uh, uh, Kennedy School. Now, was that uh, immediately after Columbia? Was there some work in between? Tell us a little bit about that transition. 
Sure. And well, that was, that's, there's an interesting story there, which I, I probably shouldn't go through too much detail, but it's kind of funny in the following sense. I was, as I mentioned, I was passionate at that time about French and I had learned how to speak French. And I was also, I had taken quite a few mathematics and computer science courses. So I had some good quantitative skills that I had built uh, at Columbia as well. In any case, I got the internship. When I was a senior, I was interviewing with various companies and I got a fairly prestigious internship for a, 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 like a, a growth intern program at Citibank, uh, which was a leading bank at the time, it was still at Citicorp. And um, I accepted that job, not sure what I wanted to do. And in the probably the six months, it, they were recruiting early on in my senior year. So I had agreed to do that. But then over the course of the second half of my senior year, I was able to uh, land an internship working in France, in Paris, for a French bank. So, um, because of basically because of my computer uh, programming skills. So I ended up opting, as opposed to going to kind of Wall Street and starting a financial career in New York, yeah. I really wanted to go abroad. So I moved, I took the, the, I took the internship in France and moved to Paris after college. And I actually lived in France almost oh, two years. Fantastic. Uh, working various jobs there, which that was quite adventurous. I was, I, I was always interested so had you had you finished your senior year, or was that a senior year abroad type of program? No, I I graduated Columbia. I graduated in eighty five, right. and I, in May eighty five, and I moved to France at the end of May in nineteen eighty five, and um, I lived um, in a very modest uh, we used to call Chambre de Bonne, a little uh, a little room on top of a building, and I was making very little money because I was getting paid. I think I was a ridiculously little amount of money, but I was I was able to explore Europe and. I had gone to Paris and Europe in, in between my junior and senior year. And I think the travel bug and the European bug had caught me. And um, I, I just loved moving to France. I became quite a Francophile at that time. And while I was working in banking in France, I was, of course, uh, passionate about the art scene and the music scene in Paris. Fantastic. So did you work for the bank that entire two years or did you have other jobs? I worked for... But I worked first. I went over working for Société Générale, which was a bank, and that was only a short-term internship. I think it was six months. Uh, and what was interesting about it was at that, at that point, that was the only maybe it was even three months. That was the co only commitment that I had. So, not doing the Citibank, which was like a career-long track for a three-month internship in Paris, was a bit risky. But while I was in Paris, I was able to land another job at a competing bank at Credit Lyonnais. So I think I was able to play the two banks off each other, and I, I got, I got, I got a, another job, and was able to stay in France with Credit Lyonnais. Now, how did you secure the internship? Was that through a student program? Yes, the original internship was through a student program that was uh, I found on campus at Columbia. Uh, was that ISEC? I know that they they're an intern, they would do international internships, or was it a, another program? I think it was ACTEAM, is what I remember. I don't remember. I don't know if it's still around. But I was able to get a, a carte de séjour, like a working visa, and a, yeah, and, and that got me there. So that got me there, and then I found this other job, and um, I knew. So I was, I was loving. I mean, sometimes I think I could have probably stayed in Europe for the rest of my life. I, I was loving it. Of course, I had family back here, and I did have aspirations to do maybe go to graduate school. So it was during that time that I became fascinated by not only travel but by you know Europe and by international. Uh, uh, experiences. So having, having loved my experiences abroad, I thought about going into 
either foreign service, like the State Department, or maybe into international business, which is what led me to, 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 to opt to go, as opposed to going to business school, I ended up going to school for international affairs and public policy at, at the Kennedy School. Right. So that led me to... Public policy degree. Very interesting. Did you did you think at that time that might be, you know, a government or a foreign service uh, direction might be an option for you? Absolutely. So because I loved languages and I really enjoyed um, being abroad, the thinking that went into that was that I might go into government work, maybe specifically the State Department, Foreign Service. Um, in fact, later on, I, I actually passed the Foreign Service exam. I, I probably could have gone down that track. So um, when I was going into grad school, I, had, I, I was still working for Bentley and I remember, and I was coming back and working for their New York office a bit as I was thinking about where to go to grad school. And I thought maybe about going to law school, um, but uh, at business school. But I was intrigued by pursuing this international affairs uh, approach. So I ended up applying to some grad schools like the Fletcher School at Tufts and um, Foreign Service School at Georgetown and then the Kennedy School. And I ended up uh, go to, uh, opting for a two-year master's program um, in public policy, which was uh, kind of a fairly analytical-based uh, approach based on economics at uh, the Kennedy School. And in, after uh, coming back to the States from, from France, I, I moved up to Cambridge to attend uh, Harvard. That's great. Now, did you continue to work with Credit Lyonnais then, or the, did you leave them at the time of uh, starting school? I left, I left Credit Lyonnais to join to go to grad school. Yes, I, it was a complete. And it sounded like you advanced in the positions there. Were you actually managing people as well uh, in your final uh, days there at Credit Lyonnais in, in New York? Yeah, it was very interesting. So I started out by doing, when I was in Paris, I was doing a really writing interface programming type stuff. I was kind of also what was called at the time a research systems analyst, meaning that I helped define requirements for uh, for uh, computer requirements for various sections of the bank. But I ended up leading a team um, that was based in New York that was focused on um, developing software solutions for uh, derivatives trading, options trading. And that was New York, just why I ended up coming back to New York with, with that group. And um, it was a good experience. I mean, I think, I think in terms of work experience, I enjoyed it. I wasn't passionate about financial instruments, but I enjoyed uh, the analytical work related to software development. Any uh, early leadership lessons that you uh, achieved in that role? Uh, let me try to think. I did, yeah, a, a couple of interesting ones. I, um, the, the, my so-called, quote-unquote, clients were, as I mentioned, different divisions of the bank. These were traders on the trading floor, or like I, rem I remember very well one woman who was running the, the limited partnership business at the bank. And they were quite difficult people to make happy. <laughs> so I think the leadership lesson which maybe I, I extended from my work at the restaurant, was how problem-solving uh, for difficult, demanding, and sometimes unreasonable clients can be both challenging and, uh, and rewarding if you, can, if you can be successful. And uh, I guess the lesson that I took away is that there was once a, this very uh, demanding, kind of ordinary, difficult uh, leader of this section of the bank who was uh, almost quite cynical that, that the software group could help her and I remember we developed an application that kind of blew her away, and she thought it was amazing. So, like turning that around um, was a, a challenge, and um, it required a certain amount of leadership to step up and do that. 
Yeah, awesome. So uh, Procedure Masters, uh, full-time in that position, uh, any work that you did or anything that you were involved with during that period? Yes. So, so I, I was full-time at Harvard. Um, I wasn't working during that time. Uh, I was basically focused on studying. I was also had various interests in Cambridge as well. I took out some some special courses at uh, MIT and at the business school. And in terms of my love of language, I got involved during those years with a group that was studying at Harvard from Japan. Uh, and I started taking Japanese. Uh, so I was a, a fluent French speaker and I started pursuing uh, at, in Harvard Yard outside of the Kennedy School education. I started learning Japanese and was fascinated by that. I always loved languages. So um, that became an interest of mine. It led me to, interestingly enough, uh, we started within the school various contacts from the Japanese students that were studying allowed us to create a Japan intern program. So in between, in between my first two, my, my two years at grad school, I, me and about seven other students went over to Tokyo for various internships at companies. And um, because of my banking background and having learned a little bit of Japanese, I got landed an internship at Sanwa Bank, which was a large bank in Tokyo. Uh, and so that was another fascinating international experience to go spend was, I think I was in Japan for about four months, because uh, from like May to September. And that was between your first and second year of master's. Yes. And that was a, like an inc another incredible experience in terms of opening up my horizons. Japan was such a different place than even the states of Europe. Uh, and Tokyo at that time was a booming economy. That was when, you know, in the 80s, Japan was going through their go-go years before the economic depression. So it, that was a phenomenal experience. And um, I mean, I could, I could tell a lot of stories about those years, but, but that, that particular episode. But I, I did that between after my first year and then came back and finished up grad school my second year. What were some of the key lessons you took away from your uh, Japanese uh, you know, work experience? Well, I think as different as I thought working in France was as, a, as an experience, Japan was like it was another world. I mean, I remember I, at first I was living in this dormitory, which was uh, uh, outside of Tokyo. And it was like a dormitory with it. It was probably like uh, 3,000 Japanese men and me. <laughs> you know, I was like the only gaijin, the only non-Japanese person. But, but like I, I could, re I, I could um, speak Japanese and I could read and write hiragana and katakana, the phonetic languages, but I didn't really read kanji, which is very quite difficult, the Chinese characters. And I remember when I used to go home from work, I'd have to count the stations because they all looked the same and they were only in Japanese characters. So like, I, you know, so it's like, like I'd have to count the number of stations so I could get off at the right place. And it was quite, it was to be, I guess to work in an environment that was so radically different, it's almost like going to, going, going to the planet. Um, it was frightening at times, but fascinating. And, um, you know, I loved exploring other cultures. So for me, it was, it was quite opening. So, uh, back to Harvard, finished up your degree and was, uh, McKinsey your first job coming out of, uh, the Kennedy school? Yeah. I mean, that, that was interesting in a, in a, uh, in a couple of ways. I mean, so I had mentioned before that I was just in foreign service and I had, I had passed the foreign service exam, both the written and the oral. Yeah. I mean, you had the language capabilities, you lived overseas, Europe, Asia, you seemed like a perfect uh, candidate for foreign service or, or perhaps the CIA. <laughs> right, right. So I was considering um, joining the State Department as that was one path. 
Another path that I was considering was uh, Sanwa Bank, the Japanese bank, wanted me to come over and work in Japan. They were offering me a full-time job based on the internship. So I was considering whether to spend more time in Asia. And then on campus, recruiting was McKinsey, which I had no idea what consulting was like or about. But I ended up becoming very interested in consulting based upon uh, learning about it through these information sessions that, that McKinsey held at the Kennedy School. At the time, McKinsey, you, traditionally the big consulting firms were recruiting at like Harvard Business School and mostly the business schools. But a program at McKinsey that had developed a couple of years earlier involved them trying to diversify their associate base to bring in advanced degrees, not only in business. So they began recruiting at Kennedy School and other places as well, um, science degrees, things like that. So I ended up, it was quite a rigorous program. Like they were like eight rounds of interviews. And I remember after each one getting advanced thinking, wow, this is like ridiculous. I'll probably never land this job. But I, to make a long story short, I got accepted by McKinsey to join their New York office. So I was debating between the foreign service, going to Japan or coming to New York to work for McKinsey. And I chose, I chose the latter. So I, I ended up taking a job with McKinsey, which at the time, I don't know if it's still true today. was quite a prestige. It was quite hard to get. It was quite prestigious to get into McKinsey. So but a very different path and, and, you know, interested to know kind of your thought process behind that, because as you described your early background, your interest in liberal arts, living abroad, now in both Europe as well as Asia, the languages, uh, was it hard for you to say, you know, well, let's take a look at, uh, you know, a, a management consulting type of direction versus uh, going down the foreign service road? Well, so I think what intrigued me about it was, first of all, the notion of problem solving just fundamentally leveraging both quantitative and qualitative skills to solve problems was something that I love to do. I mean, I've, I've done that throughout a lot of my my, my educational years. Um, McKinsey also represented a vast opportunity for international exploration in that they had offices in every country. The fact that I was so international was very attractive to them. Um, so I, I think um, what I opted for was was... Uh, I didn't let go of the international aspirations, but I ended up channeling it in a business environment as opposed to a public service one, which, and I have a lot of friends, by the way, from back from grad school, that I still goes with that ended up going to the state department and built very interesting careers, you know, so it's a very different path, but I don't regret, I think going to McKinsey, I mean, the, ne the next couple of years in my life, while, while extremely demanding from a work perspective, um, were extremely formative in terms of my business understanding. No question. And how many years were you at McKinsey? Almost six years. Wow. And any of that international? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I had wonderful experiences there. I mean, I worked with a lot of different, um, a lot of different clients and sectors in the economy, but I ended up spending a fair amount of time first in Europe working for a Swedish company uh, that was trying to develop a product in the U.S. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time uh, th there. And then I ended up, um, I was thinking about going to work for McKinsey Paris in France, but I ended up um, agreeing to do a project, it was supposed to be a six-week project, that was initially based out of uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina. And I did still speak a little bit of Spanish, so I ended up accepting that. And right before I was about to leave to go do that, that assignment in Argentina, the company, it was a South American company, and they were in multiple countries, and they decided to base the assignment out of the Sao Paulo office in Brazil. So I didn't speak any Portuguese, but I decided to take the assignment nonetheless. And I went for to Sao Paulo for what was supposed to be six weeks 
I quickly started learning Portuguese, and um, I ended up staying a year in Brazil doing work for that for that client. So I, I that was a, yet a third national experience. That was quite interesting. I moved to Brazil. I moved to Sao Paulo, um, working with this South American conglomerate uh, in multiple businesses, um, focusing on mostly Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, like the southern part of South America, um, and was traveling a lot across those three places and traveling all over Brazil. Um, it was a very interesting assignment. There were multiple assignments. It was a first project that led to other work, so I ended up staying about a year. So uh, during those consulting years, did you have a team that you managed as well? And if so, tell us a little bit about maybe how your leadership style evolved during that period. Sure. So, yeah, I, I mean, as, as a McKinsey associate develops, you go from being kind of a contributor to leading teams, which they used to call, I don't know what they call it today, they used to be called an engagement manager. Um, and so basically you're running, you're running the, the project for, for a particular client. So at that point, I, had, I had, was already an, uh, an engagement manager and um, I was running different projects, first in the U.S. in New York, and then in the assignment in Brazil was in fact leading uh, originally a small team for the first piece of work of around three associates. And then in the follow-up work, it grew to a much larger, a larger team. Um, so it was quite interesting in terms of working with and coaching and developing other associates. And I think I also realized that while I was a great like problem-solving leader in terms of leading the problem-solving effort, I think it was my first exposure to becoming, you know, a, kind of a people uh, leader, to developing people. And um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fascinating. And what was interesting, particularly about the Brazil assignment, is that these were uh, Brazil, Brazilian, you know, Portuguese-speaking Brazilians. They weren't of my culture. So in addition to the usual, um, the, the usual cultural, uh, the usual quantitative uh, questions relating to building the consulting practice, there were also all the cultural issues. But I, I took to it very well and ended up leading a couple of teams, one based in Sao Paulo, another one based in... Um, I think it was in, in, in Buenos Aires and um, that region expanded, which is why I spent so much time in South America. And uh, was that uh, a challenge, particularly leading people that weren't native English speakers? And, you know, what type of um, tools or, or uh, approaches did you use and how to manage and develop that team? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was quite interesting, especially because of the language difficulty, although most of most of the associates that I work with did speak English fairly well because my my Portuguese was pretty minimal. The hard part was not so much um, coaching them, but a lot of the clients only spoke Portuguese. So so it was the work with the, on the client side that was challenging, and I had to figure out how to leverage, being that they were native, how to leverage their native uh, both language and cultural uh, competencies to help advance the problem solving effort for the whole engagement with the client. So I would say that that experience, many experiences at McKinsey were very important to me in terms of developing my leadership skills. Um, but I think that was one of the most important years. I also did a, a lot of interesting work for um, in the media and telecom practices for uh, AT&T and other large clients. But I, I liked working for entrepreneurial small clients very much. Any other lessons from uh, your work, those six years with McKinsey that you took away from in terms of, you know, management approach and working with people? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, McKinsey is a very um, rigorous 
uh, um, place to work. I mean, you're working very long hours. You're on the road a lot. I think the three things that that you know I I took away in terms of competencies or areas where I developed was obviously in problem solving. We talked about that, but I also think in teamwork, in terms of working with different types of people, and I think I understood and developed a new appreciation for what I sometimes call results-driven management, meaning, you know, it's great to do great work and analysis, but fundamentally to affect a business is you must create outcomes. So, you know, what we call in the the vernacular, getting things done. (laughs) So, um, you know, an appreciation for execution and implementation and how important it was to see results through, to get things done, um, was an important uh, lesson that despite whatever the obstacles were, because there always are obstacles, you've got to pursue your objective and get something accomplished. And um, I think that was an appreciation that I developed at McKinsey in the sense that in my educational years, I was probably more idealistic and I almost enjoyed problem solving for the sake of the process as opposed to the results. So what was kind of the key you know, factor for you to go over to the client side? Um, I know that's fairly typical for McKinsey employees to spend kind of that five to eight year period and then, you know, go and run a business. But what was the kind of the seminal event for you? Well, I think um, I was always much more entrepreneurial than um, likely to stay a consultant for my whole career. So when I came, actually, when I came back from Brazil, I was working with various media clients back in New York. And I found that I was not so interested in consulting with big companies. I found them um, somewhat less uh, agile and fast to implement compared to smaller companies. And I felt this entrepreneurial bug hitting me that made me want to you know, not only consult, but go out and do. So I, I knew probably as soon as I got back from Brazil, like I, I likely could have become a partner and, and like stayed and worked at McKinsey, especially in South America, because I had established a good client base there at the time. But I very much was interested in going outside of consulting and going into, into more of an entrepreneurial business role. Really, on the, I, was, I was looking for something on the line side, you know, managing a business. But um, I was very interested in media. So when I came, this is around 1995, for, and I ended 94, 95. I'm back in New York, and I'm thinking about what I want to do if I leave McKinsey. And I'm looking at various uh, media companies. I remember interviewing with ABC and the kind of traditional media. And at that time, there was this thing we used to call at that stage, we called it new media. (laughs) What it meant was um, that there were three new media companies that were operational. There was AOL, a company called CompuServe, and a company called Prodigy. And they, they had online services. They were like a new way. It was kind of a new type of media. And... That to me seemed fascinating. So I ended up, um, Prodigy was the one in New York. I probably would have been much more financially successful had I gone to AOL because that's the one that, ex- that exploded as a successful business. But Prodigy was very innovative. It was actually a joint venture between IBM and Sears. And I was able to get a staff job. It wasn't a line job originally. I was working for the CFO. I got a staff job at Prodigy as a, vi- as a vice president. Um, actually, initially as a director. And I ended up leaving McKinsey for that job because I was, again, I was passionate about new media and thought it was interesting. What's, what's interesting, uh, Brant, in retrospect, is how much, think about how much I've evolved from kind of international stuff. I'm now doing new media, you know? <laughs> uh, so 
You know, I, I was just going to comment on that, uh, Seth. I, you know, I, what I hear a lot from you is passion. And you haven't said it, but you've certainly demonstrated curiosity. You know, it sounds like you have a very curious mind where, you know, you'll discover something and then go deep on it. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And I think, I think it's, it's, you know, sometimes when I talk to young people today, either through interviews or through educational um, events, I always try to point out that I think part of building a successful career in almost any field, to some degree, is following your passions and your curiosity. I don't, I don't think, because... I don't think you can script. Well, I guess some people do, but for me, it wasn't about scripting a path and following it. It was about evolving as I became curious about new things and not always worrying so much. Like when I first went to France, I had no idea what that was, what that was going to take me. I, I really followed my curiosity and let it lead me to places that where I felt passionate, um, but didn't necessarily know what the career ramifications might be for those, those, those steps. So from progeny and, and kind of uh, progeny and getting into new media, where, what was your next step after that? What, what was your next level of curiosity? Well, so I ended up after a staff job, I ended up running um, what was the e-commerce revenue streams of prodigy. So interestingly enough, at that time, the major business model for the online services, prodigy, AOL and CompuServe were all about, having people dial into the service because they were charged like, I think it was uh, a certain amount per hour. So the, the business model was making them stay on. And then in 1996, AOL, but then quickly all the three services went to a flat rate, like 1995 per month. And so all of a sudden the business model changed because it wasn't about keeping people on the service. That was, you only got a, a flat amount of revenue for that was unlimited for $19 a month. You had to make money through advertising and through e-commerce. So I pioneered what I led at Prodigy was the building of an e-commerce business, meaning how do we sell things to customers online? Now, at that time, in 1996 and 97, that was completely new. Now we take it for granted. In fact, one of the earliest um, deals that I did with Prodigy was developing a book selling application on the service with a company called Amazon that was unknown back then uh, to sell books to Prodigy customers. Um, we also did a fair amount in financial services. Like I, we developed with a company called PCFN, a trading application where customers could trade online and we got a portion of every commission. So those businesses were successful uh, as generating revenue streams based on new applications. And I ended up becoming, at, at the time, an expert in e-commerce even though it was a very early field, we were learning how to develop it. For example, we, we did a deal with a company called, um, uh, what was it called at the time? It, it eventually, it was, uh, eventually became uh, Travelocity. It was Easy Saber. It was, a, it was a division at the time of American Airlines called Easy Saber, ticketing service. And we created an application for Prodigy to buy, to buy travel tickets online for people to book their own fares. And that ended up becoming and spinning out as Travelocity years later. So uh, it was quite interesting in terms of the pioneering aspects of, right. And so that's where my curiosity took me. Exactly. Now, Prodigy itself was going through a lot of difficulty because the joint venture between IBM and Sears was not operating well. So I was loving the work and learning and building, 
But um, I ultimately wanted to take, I ended up taking that knowledge of e-commerce and helping a media company uh, based in Germany called Bertelsmann, very large media company, in building internet of digital based applications for their businesses in the U.S. And then that's how you connected uh, uh, with uh, eventually Scholastic. Did that follow Bertelsmann? Yeah, no, right. Right after, so I went from Prodigy to Bertelsmann, where I led. I learned a lot about traditional direct marketing. Of course, what we were doing digitally was a form of direct to consumer marketing. But in terms of traditional direct marketing, like uh, direct mail, all those fields, I that's where I, I, in the Bertelsmann businesses. So Bertelsmann had a couple of sides. There was the music side with BMG. There was the book publishing side, like Random House. But I was I was running a lot of the direct to consumer businesses, like the book clubs, and that was increasingly about um, in, in, the, in the publishing arena about developing editorial and, and commerce based applications for consumers uh, that originally were direct mail based and phone based and moving to moving them to the web. So I did that for quite a few years. It was quite successful. I led a company uh, originally called uh, Doubleday Interactive, which is a digital side of Bertelsmann, and then. That, that we ended up merging that into Bookspan. And then from there, I was recruited to lead all of e-commerce for Scholastic, which is another publisher, mostly focused on the children's space. And uh, is that when you moved into the C-suite, Seth? Yes. Yeah, so, well, that was the first time I really, uh, you know, while I was, at one point I was uh, uh, chief, I was chief marketing officer for the Bertelsmann side. And then it was Scholastic that had a separate division called um, e-Scholastic at the time. And I was hired as the CEO of that. I was an SVP of the overall corporation, but I was in the corner office for that division, which was about 150 people. And um, I was in charge with building the e-commerce business at Scholastic. Now, did you have aspirations at uh, some point in time uh, along that path to become a CEO? Or when did that kind of uh, strike you? Or, or was it really just something that evolved with your you know, ongoing experiences and then you're uh, obviously moving into Guthy Rank here after that? Yeah, I mean, it was. It, I think it just evolved. I never, I didn't know in my early days that I was going to be a CEO. Okay. But I, but I, I took, I love leading things. I mean, I have to say my, my leadership drive and ambition as I, I guess part of what I realized post McKinsey was that I could successfully lead efforts and get stuff done and build businesses. I did it at Prodigy. I built quite a few businesses then at Bertelsmann. So um, I enjoyed building things and that usually required a leadership type role. Um, I think my first official kind of CEO role was at Scholastic. And then um, interestingly enough, I ended up taking a, a CMO role. So I, I don't think I was passionate about it. Necessarily have to be the CEO. What happened at, at Guthy Renker was I started consulting with them after I had left Scholastic. It, for I was working on a project with them as an advisor, and I ended up thinking that they were extremely entrepreneurial. I loved the business model they were building. I was in New York at the time; they were based in, in California, in Santa Monica. So I um, ended up taking a role being chief marketing officer, reporting to the CEO uh, at Guthy Renker. Um, Back in 2009, I guess I took that show, early 2010. So I moved to California. I was CMO, and I, I ended up working very closely with the CEO, who was another mentor of mine. I mean, one thing I probably should have mentioned is I always found mentors that were very helpful in my career. At Bertelsmann, it was, there was a guy named Marcus Wilhelm, who uh, you know was a, he was the CEO, and he was an extremely important mentor for me. Likewise, at, at Guthy Renker, um, the CEO was a guy named Ben Vanderbunt, 
And uh, he became an important mentor to me. Uh, and we built some great businesses. I mean, now. Did you seek those mentors out, Seth, or did they find you or combination? A little bit of both. I, did, I think I, I think it was a little bit of both in that I, I did seek out people I could learn from. And I think both in these two cases, I think these people were impressed with my with my competencies and wanted to help coach me. So, but I think mentorship is an important part of building any career. Would you say it evolved over the years? You know, how how did it change, if at all, you know, from the time when you were doing your consulting work and obviously doing your banking work before that to, you know, when you made it into the C-suite? Well, I think as you get more senior in your career, your, your leadership style has to evolve. And I think to be successful anyway, I think mine did in the sense that early on in, in your career, I think leadership that you use tends to be um, very much of directing and getting stuff done and doing analysis and performing um, uh, projects and, and being like what I would call an individual contributor. But as you grow in your career, you, what you end up doing is becoming more of a people leader. And you have to find and recruit and develop people who can do what you used to do, get stuff done. And so I think I became more of a diverse uh, leader in the sense that I could adapt my style based on the situation probably in my later McKinsey years. So now at this point, I think I was able to start differentiating between leadership styles that range from being more um, directing someone carefully versus coaching them versus completely delegating when appropriate. So if there's a manager that was working for me that was capable of getting, have both the skill and the will to get something done, you know, the whole idea that you learn as a leader is to be hands off and let them do it. You know, you don't want to overmanage somebody or like direct somebody who needs, who ha- who's capable in a certain instance. So I think what you have to start doing, I think this, this is what I needed to do was vary or change my, or modify my, my, my style based on the situation at hand. And I think if you talk to people who work for me over the course of these years, I could be a very direct kind of in your face, close manager, but I could also, if that was required, but I also was very comfortable delegating and being a hands-off type of manager for uh, people that I felt could rise to the task and deliver results. So I, th- I think I, I started to learn how to be a different type of leader in different situations. Well, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? You know, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I don't think there's one formula. So I, I over the course of many roles, I've hired many people. And I've had to fire some as well and lay off people, as you always do. I think um, I tend to look for, uh, for th- I tend to explore three areas when trying to get to know someone to determine whether it's someone I want to hire or invest in. I mean, I guess the, the first area is basic all around smarts and co- and just, you know, problem solving acumen. Can this person really struggle with and solve a problem? How smart are they? And then, you know, that that's, that's still a fundamental important criteria. I think the second criteria is related to how to interact and work with other people. So I guess it would call it teamwork, but it means, being able to have conversations and interactions with people at multiple levels, being able to, you know, talk to a CEO about something, but also talk to, you know, a young analyst or a worker about something, being able to relate to people and solve problems and get work accomplished with different types of people. I think that's usually an important skill. Now, it depends on the job I'm recruiting for. If I'm recruiting for, you know, a technical job, that might be less important. But um, 
I think I think in general that teamwork and ability to work well with others would be a second criteria that I often use. Um, and the third one would be results driven. Get, you know, getting stuff done, being able to to, to get a result, and um, that that's that's just the mindset. But I think it's very important. And so I think those three are kind of the areas that I I tend to explore now. I might not ask a candidate about all of those particularly, but through getting to explore their their background and their interests, I try to touch on or at least explore those three areas in determining, is this somebody I think we should hire? Is it somebody that I want to spend time mentoring or developing? Now, how do you interview and hire? And, and what are some of your best or favorite uh, interview questions? That's, that's funny. Um, I tend to, I don't have one formula. I guess early on in my career when I would hire I was more of a line manager during those years when I was running marketing departments. I would look, I would give like cases and look and give like problem solving. I, you know, I really wanted to explore the problem solving side of the candidate. As I became more senior and I was trying to myself hire leaders, I think the interpersonal uh, teamwork related issues and, and questions and the results driven orientation became more important. And as a consequence, I don't think I was as specific in the interviews about directing any kind of problem solving, I would really talk about the candidates and ask them to tell me about situations in their careers careers where they made major contributions or overcame obstacles, things like that. And that, that side became an important part of the exploration of the interview. And some of the questions I, ans- I asked were around difficult situations they faced and how they overcome them. I think that's always an important Sometimes you learn, I found in my career, from the most difficult circumstances. I once had a client at McKinsey that was very, very difficult, and I was miserable during the, the months of that engagement. But I think in retrospect, I think it was a great learning experience. Well, and yeah, it sounds like you ask questions that pretty much align with the two or three things that you look for in other people as well, right? You know, you try to get at uh, what were some of their biggest challenges? What do they think their biggest results were? And, you know, how well do they do those things? Because uh, uh, that's one thing we know about business is past results are a pretty good indicator of future performance. <laughs> I like the investment world. <laughs> Last question for you. And then I'd like to ask you to, you know, kind of sum up for us. But again, uh, talking to new grads or people that are in middle management that are looking to advance their degrees, uh, advance their careers, what are some, what's some of the career advice that you would give them? What, you know, what was important when you look back and said, you know, gosh, I've had a wonderful career. And, um, you know, if I did it all over again, I wouldn't do anything differently. But, you know, here are the couple of, you know, milestones. Here are the kinds of things that's a common thread that I always had in my mind as I took on new positions. What, what would those be, Seth? I think as we discussed, Brian, I think one of the important things for me was to follow my curiosity and my passions. I mean, so, so a lot of times people, the young people I talk to are trying to plot out step-by-step step their career. And I, I, you know, for me, I don't think you can really do that. I think you've got to follow what you love. I mean, you end up spending a very large portion of your time, at least many people do in their career, their work life. So I always feel like you've got to um, channel it to something or an area that you love doing. Otherwise, why be, why be miserable? You know, it's important to be really happy and, and satisfied. So I think following passion and curiosity is a fundamentally important part uh, and advice that I try to impart on young students. I mean, even young marketers. I used to work with a lot of young mar- people starting out marketing. And they would ask me, you know, what type of marketing job should I get? What should, what should I look for this experience in this channel or digital or, you know, uh, you know um, phone marketing? 
And I would always say to them, look for interesting uh, problems and interesting industries to work in where you think you can learn, um, interesting people to work with. So I think it's really important early on in your career that you work for interesting uh, people who you can learn, have a lot to learn from, um, where they can teach you and you can be learning every day. The first, the first part of your career is mostly more about learning than earning. Um, you know, uh, and I think people don't always recognize that they want to earn money early on and that's all fine, but you've got to, and you, when you're in your twenties and thirties, I mean, I'm still learning I'm in my mid fifties. I mean, so we're always learning, but I think the learning curve is steeper in your first, the first 10, 15 years of your career. And you've got to make sure you're learning as much as you can. You know, sometimes it's also important to learn the things that you don't want to do. I counsel a lot of, uh, you know, younger children of many of my CEO clients, and they'll say, you oh, know, Bobby doesn't know where he's going or what he's want to do. And, you know, I said, well, he, he's got to quit trying to figure out what he wants to be and just try a bunch of right, different things. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of just do it and figure it out. And, you know, you're investing in yourself, aren't you, when you're early in your career? And, and sometimes finding those things that you don't want to do are as important as finding your true path. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Right. Well, Seth Radwell, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for your time today. We've enjoyed the discussion. And once again, uh, looking forward to uh, continuing to follow your path uh, beyond the corner office. Thank you so much, but it's been a pleasure and I wish you uh, great luck with everything. Thank you very much, Seth. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.